Have you ever met one of those people who just can't be stopped? It's like they're unstoppable. Yeah, I have. Me too. What's their mystique? Nothing stops these people. Welcome to Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso. You're about to meet some of the most amazing people. They've accomplished their goals despite insurmountable odds. They beat adversity, physical hardship, and traumatic events and emerge triumphantly. They're people just like you and me, and they're winners. Are you unstoppable? Here's Frankie to show you how. Hello there, and welcome to Mission Unstoppable. Today I'm here with Mary Gillerman. She's the widow of John Gillerman, who is described as one of the best Hollywood directors nobody knows. Also with me is the Good Radio Network's movie critic, as you know, Brent Marchand. I guarantee you that you know some of his 34 films, which include King Kong, the Jessica Lange version, Towering Inferno, and The Blue Max. Mary Gillerman's co-authored book has been referred to as a love letter to her late husband and is titled John Gillerman, The Man, The Myth, The Movies. Mary is a licensed marriage and family therapist in California and the director of communications and a senior practitioner at the Pellin Institute, which offers training and contribution training and gestalt. And we can talk to her a little bit about that later. She's also an artist in her own right. She wrote and starred in her one woman show from crazy to sane, a tale of feminine mysticism, magic and madness. So welcome, Mary. Hi, Frankie. Hi, Brett. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to say, um, it's, it's very clear after reading your book um, that you have a deep and lasting love for, for John, your husband, your late husband, um, a man known for his terrible temper, who you describe as a wildly difficult but passionate and exciting, loving and tender contradiction of a man. And he self-describes himself as, I'm impossible. So yeah. let's find out, where did you meet? What was the attraction? Well, the attraction was instant. <clears throat> he was over in London with a script. That's what he tried to do when he no longer got jobs, was write scripts. And um, I was in a small um, independent publishing firm. And we were at the same kind of dinner party soiree thing in North London when he was over meeting this producer. And um, it was one of those see each other across the room times, you know, <laughs> it's like... I thought, wow, who's that gorgeous man? He was so like vivacious, you know. And um, he um, told me afterwards that as soon as he heard my voice, he knew I was just like him, which meant we both, I'm much better now and he got better, but we both got sort of wildly high and then had lows, you know, had depressions. So um, yeah, I just, I, I did fall in love at first sight, which is the only time that really happened in my life. <laughs> there was a big age difference between you. What was that? Yeah, it was 27 years. Wow. Um, he was only about six months uh, younger than my dad, <laughs> uh, who joked the first time you met him in person, shall I call you son? <laughs> ah, that's funny, you know, because my dad, who is also born in 1925, has a wife who was born in 1957. <laughs> Oh, that's pretty close. Yeah. 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 It's pretty, pretty darn close. Uh, interesting though. Um, Mary, and I'm going to get to you, Brent, in one second. You, in the book you, um, that you published about the life of your ex, of your, sorry, your late husband, 
Um, you referred to as he was extraordinarily gifted yet critically neglected filmmaker. And I'm, I'm kind of curious why that is. Why do you think he was neglected? Well, I think it, I don't think I wrote that. I think it was Neil Sinyard who okay. founded the film department in Hull University and was one of my early supporters in this whole venture. And the, the general opinion among the people who wrote for the book um, and myself is that it was because he could turn his hand to anything, he didn't develop a genre. And some more perceptive of the critics noticed that he'd had a signature style. And it's fascinating watching his really early films, including his first feature, where, you, you know, you get the tilted rooms. And I mean, I'm not a film person, so I probably won't remember all the things. Um, long shots, you know, um, brooding shadows. You get these um, filming from underneath. You, you, he has a style that pops up over and over again. And he didn't have the freedom to develop his true uh, artistic um, talent. Vision, yeah. That vision, yeah, that we see in Rapture because he was left alone to do it there. We see his right. poet, right, really. And um, so it was a mixture of those things, plus him being difficult, difficult with producers. He was so good at what he did and he was good at getting things on budget and on time most of the time. So he kept working, he kept getting offered jobs, but his um, irascibility, his ability to apply himself to any kind of film he was offered, uh, those things uh, uh, meant that he didn't get the chance to follow. That makes what sense. Was, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Brent? Well, you know, I think it's really interesting that he was able to adapt to so many different styles because I think that's really a, a sign of a truly gifted director. I mean, when you look at the works of directors like, say, you know, Stanley Kubrick or John Schlesinger or some of these people who've done so many different styles of storytelling and so many different genres of movies, that that really should help the person to stand out quite a bit more. Um, but one of the things I found fascinating about his career, and, and this comes from what you included in the book with his, his essay that he wrote after he came out of the hospital, where he was uh, detailing all the different challenges that he went through in his life. It seemed like a lot, of, a lot of what happened in his films was a way of him working through his own personal issues, even though they were dealing with very different subject matter the underlying themes that were there definitely reflected things that he seemed to be working on personally. So with you having been a therapist, I, I was just curious to see what you thought about the idea of, were his works in many ways almost like a form of art therapy for helping him to uh, resolve these issues that he hadn't addressed before? Well, I do believe that, you know, I wrote that into what I wrote. I don't know that he saw it. I don't know that he knew that about himself, but that's kind of ordinary. If you're, if you're not working on your issues in therapy where you do know you're doing that. Um, I think it's particularly strong in his first film, Torment, where there's a scene that was cut and cut and cut because it was uh, by the senses, I mean, because it was so intense where the woman, the, the secretary that both brothers are in love with, uh, the jealous paranoid one, tries to strangle her. And I always felt that sense of she couldn't escape the threat coming 
was a reflection of, you know, I'm a little boy on a desk and I'm going to get the hell beaten out of mm -hmm. me and there's nothing I can do. And I, I felt that he turned that understanding of powerlessness and helplessness, that other very mm -hmm. frightening scene where someone's chased by a would-be sexual assailant in the, the crowded day. He, he turned that um, sense of helpless terror uh, into an artistic contribution, whether he was conscious of it or not. And I think that's part of how he works through what he writes about in his autobiographical essay of belatedly coming to understand that the world isn't necessarily a completely cruel place where you're always the victim. Yeah, because a lot of times people who are, you know, abused as children become bullies as adults. And I'm not saying he was a bully, but this irascible temper, the, you know, hard to get along with, is that the shield don't get close because I, I don't want to get hurt or is it, you know? Uh... Well, I, I, I think it, it is partly that, but I think, you know, and I'm not a um, psychotherapist who uses diagnosis. I actually practice with the Pellin Institute because it's a mental health model, not a mental illness model. Right, right. Um, but uh, using that kind of common diagnosis that people know what it means, I'm pretty certain he had still at 90, nearly 90, what you call PTSD. Mm -hmm. if, I, mm -hmm. if I came up behind him quietly, he, he'd be like this for 15 minutes. Oh, so okay. um, I think he just, I think that, you know, anyone who suffers from the kind of trauma where your physiological system is activated and it's really hard to learn to do anything about it because the brain and body take over is um, it's hard not to be easily triggered. So here he is, you know, in a situation of power when he's directing and he's triggered and triggered and under stress, of course, the stress of sure. filming it. So um, it, it came out like that. And he, he, he wasn't uh, uh, any other kind of bully than by shouting. No, no, <laughs> I mean, no. I didn't mean to allude that he was, you know, a mean person or, you know, hurt people. Um, no, I understand. In that way. Yeah. Yeah, the you did you did allude or diagnose him as bipolar, both of you, in the book. You suggested it. It's a it's a, a, a my, in my terminology that he used with me. We call it extreme mood swings. Yes, you know, coming from a point of uh, mental health is achievable. Yes, um, if you have the right purpose, the right contribution. Yeah, um, and you know he. Uh, everyone needs more support than just therapy really you know he did have a purpose that fulfilled him but it was well he wanted to make like 10 raptures yeah <laughs> you know, his, and he didn't so um and of course there's a lot of stress in that industry so uh, he did the best he could but he made a wonderful contribution to the Absolutely. world so many films do you have any, anything you want to say, Brent? Yeah, I was going to say that it's interesting also in the fact that, you know, for somebody who supposedly had this uh, this reputation for being so temperamental and uh, prone to these kinds of outbursts, he also seemed to have a very um, strong streak of compassion running through a lot of his films, uh, particularly, as you mentioned in the chapter about his depiction of women at a time when women didn't necessarily have the same kinds of freedom to do in their lives what they can do now. Um, he, um, he, he really seemed to bring that forward, which almost seems like it's in, in contradiction to that, to that other trait. Um, but I, it was important that it came out. And I, th I think it's um, very clear 
through a lot of his works, even including his blockbusters like King Kong, you know, you see this very tender relationship between Duan and the, and the, and the monkey. I mean, it's just really very, very present in his work. Um, again, that's, that's sort of, to me, speaks to another way of kind of like working through some of these issues that he wanted to be able to come forward and stand up for the underdog and uh, make the case for them that, you know, they can be empowered. They shouldn't necessarily stay stuck living in this uh, treatment that they may have had at one point in their lives. Yeah, and I think he, you know, he, he I guess that's so accurate what you just said, that really reflects who he was as a person. You know, he wanted to trust, he wanted to be tender. And I think it did get put, uh, of course it was in his private life, but he did put it in his films. And I remember in the interview that Nick Redman, who with Julie Kergo re-released Rapture in 2011, uh, he did an interview for BAFTA archives, Heritage Archives. And uh, Nick Redman said to him, what was your favorite thing about being a director? And he said, my favorite thing about being a director was the way everyone in the cast and the crew came to you with their problems. Like, that's not what anyone was expecting to hear, <laughs> including me. But, you know, so I think that's, I think he would have been a very different, you know, this is so true of people with really traumatic histories. But if he hadn't been so bullied and so beaten, I think he would have been a very different person. But Maybe he, he, he might have been a different person if he had met you earlier, too. I mean, you were his <laughs> second wife. I, you know, you were yeah. married for 16, 17 years, so you were with him. But who knows? You know, if you had been there earlier, I mean, you well, both, I think, both had mood swings. Like you said, we were lucky we didn't have them at the same time. But. We were lucky and it would have been disastrous if we'd met earlier because yeah. I, I needed to let, be more mature to deal That's with true our too. both yeah, our were, difficulties. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, to really yeah. get the best out of the marriage that was available to get. Yeah. Interesting. And his children, do they talk to you, to you? Uh, I have limited contact with his daughter and and uh, her daughter, but his first son was killed during the filming of Sheena. Yeah, so yeah. he was very. He was still devastated by that. Fourteen years, fourteen, fifteen years later, when I met him. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Of course, you would be for sure. It, it, interesting, though. That um, so you brought the book out now, and it's been five years since he's passed. And was there significance to that? It just took yes. that long. It took or... me a long time to get around to writing. No, um, it did take a long, I had some early helpers, Kate Lees, who's the granddaughter of Adelphi Studios that gave him his start in life, uh, filming life, um, and um, a BFI person called Joe Botting and Neil Signor were like my early supporters. And Neil found the other academic writers. And um, uh, sorry, forget the, the question. I know I was going somewhere. Oh, why it took you five years to write? Oh, yeah. And then um, uh, having collected um, a, enough, quite early on, I got the idea, let's do a lot on the early films that we can cover because they're so good and people don't know them over here in America. Let's really focus on Rapture and let's do one on each blockbuster. And um, we had all but one other essay on of the three on Rapture and me in, you know, um, um, early last year. And um, a colleague in the Pellin Institute said to me, maybe it's difficult to write because he's still mourning John. And um, I, that made sense to me, you know, because I've been trying to write it. 
So last August, I just said, I'm going to write something every day. And then I uh, wrote um, 16 or 17,000 works in a couple of weeks. So it worked. And so that's the, the, five, the five years. So it's, a, it's an interesting and difficult project to have so many contributors. Yeah, and, it, uh, it, that it take time. would have been very difficult for sure. Um, I know that he didn't watch any of his movies until you. So you started to order them in VHS and video eventually. And um, you sat down with him and, and you watched them, everyone except Towering Inferno, which he still had a hate on for. <laughs> he'd, 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 he'd watch a few minutes and then he'd say, I can't watch this. Oh, but it was so good. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like he did. I get it though. It drove I him I to it. his worst period in his life. So it wasn't a very happy memory. Yeah, yeah. But uh, good movies. Which um, which of the, the early movies do you suggest people look for? There's so many that are good in the early movies. I don't know what. Brent, have you seen or read any about them? Or I, I'm most familiar with the blockbusters because that was the period where I grew up. Right. Um, but I have started, you know, looking to to find some of the earlier ones, and uh, I'll, I'll admit I have not seen many of them all the way through, but. Uh, I was very impressed with what I saw of Rapture, just in terms of the cinematography and, mm -hmm. you know, the quality and the look of the film. It's just, it's very different from some of his other works and so very distinctive. And it was, it was talked about in the, in the book that it really is very reflective of the French new wave films. Yeah, yeah. Well, I made, um, uh, I thought that might happen. I'm really glad to hear you say that that happened to you, you know, an interest in these unknown films. What did he do before the blockbusters? So there's a feature on the website, which is just johngilliman.com that's called Watch Films. And I did a lot of research and I found, you know, where you can see what, where you can stream, what way, what you can buy. And it's all linked up. So nice. you can, I want to tie a taste of this. What can I watch and not pay anything? Uh, there's quite a few if you're an Amazon Prime member, mm -hmm. depending on whether they're US or UK, that you can watch for free if you're an Amazon Prime member. So um, I, I hope that benefits people because I really think it's, um, I think you, you can watch his early films and see that the depth of his talent, I think, culminating in Rapture and, what he could have done if he'd gone on from there and so it's it's great that some so many of them now are, are available yeah so it's, it's interesting that um it's difficult I, I can just imagine how difficult it is to to do a movie and not be given free reign always somebody telling you well no pull you back pull you back pull you back from your artistic vision it would be very frustrating for me yeah. <laughs> very very yeah. frustrating yeah welcome to the I, film business <laughs> yeah unfortunately yeah well I, I went and had a look at your pictures Frankie and I really like them so I know you're saying that from your artist heart <laughs> oh thank you yeah yeah for sure I mean if somebody's like, no you can't use that color or we don't like color or something I'd be like ah I can't you know you're tying one hand behind my back Right. Yeah. yeah. That's, what it, that's what it's like. But I've always loved the black and whites. Like I, I'm a real I mean, I, w I was a photography major in school. And so, um, you know, way back, way back, it, you know, the black and whites always had me for it because I, I always found that the use of, of like you said, the camera angle, it created the mood uh, like Rapture did. And it just um, I, I just find them much more interesting, much more interesting, yeah. like much more artistic. Um, 
because they they did make use of that like key largo is one of my favorite and I'm, i know it's not a gillerman film but i mean just the way that they used the black and white in the camera it was, it was pretty um amazing so i hope that maybe we can you know brett maybe we can go and find those those films maybe oh, five of them or something and we'll do a little something can i, can I just in a couple of titles because i didn't answer that yeah question. yeah yeah please. so never let go is a very powerful film it's peter sellers being a straight gangster oh wow. and he was just terrific and the british public at the time couldn't accept it well <laughs> they didn't um, like peter sellers as a straight man yeah scary straight <laughs> intimidating and then there's um town on trial which is uh, one you can see easily and a guns at batasi is a really interesting study of the changeover in africa from colonialism to independence and dickie atom richard attenborough won an oscar for his yeah, sergeant major sounds good um there's a lot those are the ones that are popping to the surface right now but sure what yeah. they're really worth a look yeah all right we'll definitely do that um, One of the things that I found was, was interesting was, you know, he, he spoke so much that he didn't like most of the movies that he made except for Rapture. And yet he said, uh, I guess, toward the end of his life, that he was nevertheless uh, proud of the fact that so many of the other movies that he made gave moviegoers and viewers such great pleasure from having seen the work that he did do in those films. Yeah, I think that's true because he was interested in people. You know, it meant a lot to him that people enjoyed his films. And um, I've just been amazed how many people have said to me since he died, like you just did, Brent, that, uh, you know, I watched, I grew up watching Towering Inferno or King Kong and it made me want to be in the film business. It's like statistically weird how many people have said that to me. And um, I forget the other thing I was going to say. Um, Oh, yes, just that I, I, I think when he rewatched them, he was just disappointed, but when that he didn't make more raptures, but when he rewatched them, he did see, he, he really did change his attitude towards his films. And I'm really grateful that, you know, fate allowed me to be the person that came in and helped turn around his. Make a bit of peace uh, with it all. Absolutely. It's really true he did. You know, yeah. especially after Rapture came out and it got some of the recognition he should have got in 1965. You know, that this is a maybe this a book will give him a posthumous something. I hope so. That's well, it was it was it. also interesting too that it seemed that he seen he was a catalyst for for things that uh, maybe he wasn't expecting to come out of it. For example, uh, you know, in the book about how um, how because of Towering Inferno all the elevators now included these warnings about not using the elevator in a fire. And that was something that didn't happen before that. Yeah. I mean, that's what, that's the story you told me. And it sounds very plausible. And um, it's re he really cared about that. He was really happy about that. That's the one thing, one thing he was happy about Towering Inferno. Just for the viewers who don't know, he had to share the direction with somebody who was very difficult and full of himself. So it was very hard. My son was becoming a firefighter then, and he's like, don't watch the film, Mom. Don't watch the film. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, it's okay. It was a little scary. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm just going to take us down this other road just for a second because I'm interested in, in contribution therapy. What is contribution therapy? Mary. Well, it's it's specifically called contribution training, not contribution okay. therapy. Training. Because the, the therapy bits in the Gestalt, uh, okay. which we now call Pellin chair work. 
And David Pellin was this uh, Canadian who was actually a lay physiotherapist. When they found out he didn't have a license, they kicked him out. Uh, but he was very good at his work. And he developed this, what he called activator philosophy of human behavior. He had this amazing way of seeing how people operated and how they could reach a contribution and fulfill a purpose. And there's actually a film of him at work in the late 60s on the Pellin Institute website. And my teacher, who's now 87, um, Peter Fleming, studied with him and uh, with the family's permission, took his work when he was tragically killed in a car accident, a pedestrian accident and developed contribution training. So it's these ideas like in one sentence, the one that helped me the most, the pendulum of emotion was if you swing high, you're gonna swing low. Mm -hmm. If you have those tendencies that get labeled bipolar, you think I'm gonna be happy forever. Then you think I'm gonna be depressed forever. You don't understand there's any connection between mm -hmm. the two things. So the tools are like that to, to mental health tools are you need something called true rest which, where you feel refreshed and relaxed to go back to things you need purpose you need a contribution um, but we always don't have a little bit of the truth so that's where David Pellin also excelled you know he wasn't saying it's not a theory that's going to fit everyone right it's a set of tools you can pick up and take down just learn one learn hundreds of them and then you combine that with that in-depth work to find what's going to really turn me around in life, what's going to... So what contribution me. can I make that will make me a better person inside? Like, my, yeah, and, give me peace and, of mind? Yeah, and bring... It's, we, we, we need a flow of feelings of accomplishment. You can hear by the terms, it's deliberately like common sense, like mm -hmm. wisdom of ordinary people. Right. which we don't know all we don't of it. Have. It's like teaching us, <laughs> yeah, it's teaching us the bits we don't know. Right, right. Well, let's hear about, about um, From Crazy to Sane, A Tale of Feminine Mysticism, Magic and Madness. Well, it's actually called From Crazy to Sane, Or Am I? <laughs> the reason for that, <laughs> Or Am I, is that one of the reasons I chose not to take medication was because I really wanted uh, magic and spiritual things in my life. You know, the magic of synchronicity. I'm not sure. Yeah. Making magic. And um, it, was a, it was a tough journey because there's a lot of suffering in those extreme moods. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I did uh, de develop my spiritual life and I did uh, do a lot of healing from the, you know, now I'm a person that can have a tough two days and a few days and I'm okay. That was you know, I was stuck before in one end or the other. Um, so it's looking at, it's my life story showing how, um, how I healed partly from this therapeutic method and these tools and partly from developing the spiritual things that meant so much to me. And um, I, I know I was going to add a sentence that's gone out of my mind, sorry. <laughs> Well, the, so, but you wrote this, you wrote this, like, is it like a, it's like a play or a, a soliloquy, a one woman uh, well, what, show? Solo, solo shows, uh, I'm told, as the first time into that world, the hardest form of acting, because you're on stage for an hour plus, and you're all the characters. I think I was going to add that 
the last part of the towards the end of the show there's a section about John and his death and uh, you know where I bring him to life but it's an amazing journey that I didn't know I was going to take yeah I work with a very talented director and developer called Jessica Lynn Johnson she has free stuff and um, the things you can do and anyway I won't Yes, what were you going to say? <laughs> um, I was going to say that, you know, you came to America. I, I'm actually in Canada, but you came to America uh, from Britain uh, to follow John. And you made a life there. Do, are you staying? Like, is this home now for you? Yeah. 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 Um, I, uh, John used to say I was, uh, I, I was born a Frenchman, but I had to, the misfortune to be brought up as an Englishman. And I say I was born a Californian, but I didn't know I got till I got here. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. A lot of my difficulties were from I was too intense, I was too enthusiastic, I was too emotional. And I think if I'd been here as a teenager, you would have been normal. It would have been normal. <laughs> I might not have had such a such a stark contrast. Yeah. You know, I know because I went um, to I went to British boarding school, so I know how rigid you oh, have to be. <laughs> okay. And you know what I'm talking about. I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. I'm a Gemini, you know, like we got those mood swings too, just naturally, especially when we're young. So it, that's kind of interesting. Um, back to his French roots. Uh, his mom was French. She spoke French at home. Yeah. Uh, well, he's, I expect they did some of the time because, yes, I'm sure his parents must have done. They were both French. His mother wouldn't speak English because she didn't like having an accent and she was very shy. And he was bilingual. So I guess they must have spoken French in the home. Yeah. And, and he never thought, I'll just move to France because I'm French. No, he, I, I don't know much about that decision. You know, something to do with get, being at enlisting for world war two which oh yeah, yeah yeah right at the end some choice about nationality and he did choose maybe thought there's more opportunity he already wanted to be a film director his discharge papers that are in photograph in the book his commanding officer said you know he told me he's going to go into films he was 22 years old when he convinced his commanding officer he was going to be a film director so he may well have stayed it may have been that reason thinking there's more opportunity in Britain. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Brent, do you have anything else you'd like to ask Mary? Yeah, I was just kind of curious. I mean, in, in light of what you knew about him and his work and so forth, um, what if he were still around now, what do you think he would uh, say about the state of the current film industry? Well, I know that, uh, you know, <laughs> every Oscar screening time uh, he'd we'd put a film in and he'd say after 30 seconds, either this guy really knows what he's doing or this is a load of rubbish and I wouldn't be allowed to watch it. Um, <laughs> he, he didn't like where it was going. You know, he, he liked storytelling, which you can see in his films. Mm. He liked the, you know, any film that was kind of slower of pace and took the time with the story and was artistic. You know, we didn't like fast cuts. You know, he, so I know he didn't like that. I don't know if he kind of pronounced on the overall state of the film industry. Uh, I can't remember a judgment. Did he say anything <laughs> about the computer, the use of the computer and not the animation, but it's kind of like that three, you know? CGI stuff, yeah. Well, he did in the sense of commenting how, much, how challenging it was. 
I mean, it shows, I think, to me, let alone a film director, it shows when there's some computer stuff going on and it's often very fast and whizzy, um, probably not always. So no. he didn't like that. And I think he was proud of what he was able to achieve in both Towering Inferno and King Kong, a tremendous amount of effects that would be like really easy to do technically now. I mean, not easy, yeah. but no, yeah, were much sure. harder to do then without any help of computers. Did he not write anything? Like, he's a storyteller. Did he not write a story? Like, think, yeah. gee, I'm going to make this movie. Here's the, here's the print. Oh, he did write some of the scripts or storylines for his early films, like Never Let Go, which is pretty intense, good film. He wrote the story for that. Um, but he, you know, I would, I, I was busy trying to encourage him, find a new purpose. You know, I tried to help him lecture. He said, they don't want to, the students don't want to hear from an old curmudgeon like me. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and I said, yes, they do, they do. <laughs> no, but he, he wouldn't. And and he was private. So, I mean, he wouldn't like the book if he was alive. Hmm. What about any of the actors that he worked with over the years? Did he have a favorite? Yeah, Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen. <laughs> a man's yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. And he was very fond of Jessica Lange. And, um, well, he kind of launched he, her, didn't he? He did, yeah. And um, he loved, uh, as she was then, that soft femininity. And that, that is what, that's what I wrote about, as you referred to. The thing I really liked about him almost the most was that he really loved vulnerability and he really admired strength in women. He saw the all-round uh, potential and, and um, well, I have to say strengths again, the all-round potential and strengths of women and the loved the passionate fierceness and loved the softness and vulnerability. I never met anyone who, as much as him, who saw that fullness of femininity you know he loved femininity I love femininity it's not the modern line you know maybe a bit more now but not um sometime yeah. back you know like compete like a man he he never thought that and I never thought that so that was one of the areas where we had a lot of compatibility in our attitudes right right yeah it's very interesting um what do you hope to accomplish with the book what do you hope will happen best case well, best case scenario, I'd love film students to study. I couldn't get him to go and teach them, but I'd love it to be there because I think he has got a lot to offer in what he did. And I would, uh, I'd love people to go and watch his early films and really see who he was. And I'd love the reassessment. You know, the myth bit was, the myth is this is just an angry man. You know, mm -hmm. that's the myth. Uh, that's what got the publicity and the press. And the book, I think, does a really good job of, of showing how much more there was under the surface to him. But, you know, he can't be the only one because he, they, I mean, artistic temperament is out there, you know, it, it's out there as a, as a, I guess not, not a meme, but what, what would you, what do you call it? A trope? So, you know, he can't be the only artistic temperamental person. Right? I, know, but I think they're, all, they're not all <laughs> impossible. And he was when he was like that impossible. Yeah. Well, I, I always say I specialize in the impossible, but it's I am possible. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. It's interesting that you should mention the, uh, the artistic temperament question, because one of the things that I thought of when I kept seeing things in the book relating to his, uh, his outbursts and so forth, 
uh, it it reminded me of a movie that was made in the early 80s called The Stuntman, where there was a, uh, a stuntman who was having trouble dealing with a, a director who saw himself as being godlike and, you know, could do anything he wanted and, and uh, I guess was prone to fits of outburst as well, played by uh, Peter O'Toole. And um, I was wondering if, if there was a, any kind of connection at all between that character and John. I mean, w was there any kind of inspiration that he gave that helped to enliven that part or? Well, I, I don't know if that's how it looked from the outside. I mean, the interesting thing knowing him, I mean, that the person, the director thought he was God. I don't think that's where John was coming from. He was very modest. He never understood he was handsome. You know, everyone says he's handsome. He was very handsome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he never, he just, <laughs> you know, so he wasn't someone who played God, but, I, but he was a perfectionist. He did very, I mean, let me tell you this tiny story. At his memorial where we showed Rapture, someone came up to me and said, I have a friend who's a young Frenchman film director. And he just can't understand America because everyone's always telling him that, he, why are you shouting? And he didn't think he was shouting. Mm -hmm. So I think some of it's that, you know, the British and American not understanding the Gallic temperament, you know, the, you know, then you mix the passion and the perfection with not while he was working, but with too much alcohol, yeah, yeah. a lot of trauma. That's a very kind of heady brew for having those kind. Yeah, and he couldn't deal with anyone who had power over him because of all the abuse he suffered. So it, yeah. it was would have it would have been hard for him to be like uh, a sober kind of director. But interestingly, the only footage of him directing is on the extra an extra on Towering Inferno, and he is completely calm while he's directing in those shots. And one of the a cameraman, I think, said. Uh, you know, that it was Erwin Allen who did all the shouting and John was just quiet and got on with it. So he deserved his reputation, but it wasn't as narrow as it. You know, it's up. funny when you get a bunch of Italians together, they all sound like they're so angry, but they're just talking. They're talking, exactly. they're talking loud, but they're talking. And I can just imagine if he had, if he had been loud in, in French, it would have been very pleasant to the ear <laughs> as opposed yeah. to English. It's, it's, so it depends what language you speak. <laughs> I, I guess when when it when it all comes down to it, Mary, you've been a delight. Thank you so much for yeah, joining us, you. Brenda. Thank did you have anything you so else you wanted to? Oh, I just wanted to say, say, you know, thank you for bringing this book to light and bringing his movies to light. And I mean, I'm always one who's a who's a big fan of seeing the movie going public introduced to material that they may not have been familiar with, uh, and especially if it's work that was very little known or underappreciated because I just think it enriches the movie going experience for anybody who is a fan of, of cinema. Yeah, Brent, Brent and we do, do, sorry, movie reviews at the end of the month, every month on, on the last Thursday of the month, we usually do reviews of, of that month's movies. And he, he's got a blog called Movies with Meaning on the Good Radio Network website and other sites. So, you know, that's something that you can look forward to because we, we will watch those movies and I'm sure we'll write something. That's great. I just want to mention, we just, um, we are, we've um, ha had a, a, a Zoom thing, can't think of the word for it, on meeting. the early films, <laughs> and we will be doing one on Rapture, you know, oh, a Zoom meeting thing, and right now, because we're coming up to the Oscars, we dropped the price of the book, it's two ninety nine. that's the same price, two ninety nine dollars ebook, but um, this, this um, 
paperback was uh, gone down to seventeen ninety nine, nice. leading up to awesome. April the twenty fifth, and that's and US. That's just on Amazon. And so, uh, uh, yes. okay. And so, two ninety nine for the ebook. And JohnGillerman.com was your website with all the movies and things listed. That's with that all the movies, but the, for buying the book, we just go to yeah, Amazon. Go to Amazon. Or go to Facebook and get the actual link off the post. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, Mary, beautiful to meet you. Thank you so much for joining us and yeah, for writing that that, that beautiful yeah. book for your husband and all the other people who contributed. Um, Brett A. Hart, not the wrestler Brett Hart, <laughs> among others. Um, so yeah, yeah. His, his, um, he's just won a film at some film festival. You know, oh, did he, he? He was directly inspired to be a film director by King Kong and Towering Inferno, and he's making it so. Wow, that's amazing. Well, I'm going to say goodbye to Facebook. We're we're gone. Thank you, Facebook people. And I'm going to going to stop our recording.